Stem Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. Hi, I'm Victoria. It's very nice to meet you. I'm a second year PhD student at the CSION. So thank you for the great talk you gave and for being here with us at Stem Cells at Lunch Digested. So for the first question, um, could you describe to the general public what is the focus of your research? Yes, well, first of all, I would like to also thank you for this this uh, invitation. Yeah, so the focus of my research, basically, you know, it's we, we try to understand how tissues maintain themselves in a healthy, functional manner, uh, how our organs and our tissues, you know, all the cells in our bodies, they know they must perform or they're wired to perform a specific function and they must do every day in a, in a nicely sort of coordinated manner. So we really try to understand, well, how does that work? How many of those functions really just depend on the wiring of the cell? And how many of those functions depend on cells from a specific tissue communicating with cells from another tissue? Uh, so that's one major aspect of our research. And then uh, a major focus is, well, why things start to not work that well as we age, what is really happening there? Why is these? Why are these functions that are in either cell autonomous or that rely on communication? Why is the system failing? So that's another major branch. And then the third branch would be well, why, when when people develop tumors, when cancer is developed, well, all this has really gone bad. So uh, we know that tumors are caused by mainly by mutations, but there are many aspects of it that we still don't understand. So I would say those are really the three main branches of, of the work of my lab. Um, could you give us a sense of your background and career path and how did you get interested in all those fields? Yeah, so I uh, did my undergrad in, uh, in McGill University in Montreal. There I combined uh, two bachelors. It was biochemistry and molecular biology. And I did, I did it in that way because I was sort of fascinated by both aspects of biology. And back then, I didn't really know which one, you know, I would like. It wasn't sort of like I knew I had a very clear idea that I wanted to do both. It was more so like I was enjoying both. I didn't know which, which one really to choose. I think in the end, that was great. It, it, it went to my advantage, I think, because then it gave me the possibility to explore uh, many aspects of biology. So um, when I finished my undergrad and after doing my master's, I did my PhD focused on uh, oncology. Uh, and that was great. You know, there I sort of got all the, the nomenclature, the idea of well, what's happening with different tumors, etc. But by the end of my PhD, I started to get sort of like increasingly frustrated a little bit with the type of research that I was doing in the sense that I thought, well, we are... Uh, many labs, we are just studying the tumor cells, but without a knowledge of what happens in the tissue from where those tumor cells develop from, arise from, uh, we don't know how the normal tissue works. Or at least I didn't know how the normal tissue worked. Uh, this is why then I really started to read about, uh, well, how are how is tissue homeostasis maintained? You know, how is the balance of uh, cells that are lost on a daily basis from a tissue, how are they replenished on a daily basis by the same tissue in order to maintain functionality? No, uh, I, I thought that was very important to understand that if I was to understand 
when things go wrong. No? This is why I moved to London to one of the laboratories that, that was pioneering and is still pioneering uh, this research on stem cells, on add-on stem cells, which are perhaps not the only ones, but they are main players on how tissues maintain their functionality on a daily basis. I, I moved to the laboratory of Fiona, who gave me Fiona Watt, who gave me the opportunity to do my postdoctoral work uh, with her. And it was great. Uh, thank you. This was great. Uh, what do you like the most about your current work and the research you're doing? Yeah. So what I like right now the most uh, about our current work is um, being capable of responding things in a way that were, would be science fiction not 50 years ago, uh, science fiction like five years ago. You know, the technical advance that we have, that we are witnessing is so incredible. I'm sure if you ask anyone at any moment, you know, during their scientific career, no matter what year it is, they would tell you that. But, you know, we are seeing advances in, in uh, for example, the, the ability to look at gene expression of every single cell in a tissue. Uh, you know, things that would take before maybe 20 years to try to understand, well, what are all the cell types that are in a tumor or in a specific tissue along the time? We can now combine that with things like we can trace how cells behave over time. Uh, and we can actually combine that with amazing microscopy. So not only you're looking at what these cells are doing, where they're doing it, but also when they're doing it. Uh, that also, I, and I would very much highlight two more other, two, two extra things. First, the ability to genetically manipulate cells at the genome in a manner that is unprecedented with this technology that is called CRISPR. Uh, this, we could not do this before. Now we can manipulate a specific gene in whichever cell type we want at any given moment. Um, and uh, also, we are capable of analyzing amounts of data in an unprecedented manner. So the, the combination of mathematics, bioinformatics, and the biology and the biochemistry and molecular biology that we were you know, doing before, if you combine all that, we are probably asking very similar questions than five or 10 years ago, but the way we are capable of analyzing the system is far greater than, than, you know, than we could be. So I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying that. It, it means I have to still sit down and learn so many new things, you know? So I, so in a sense, you can never get comfortable because there's always a new technical challenge there that you must learn in order to know first, can I apply this to my questions, to my research? And then can I be critical about it when I'm presented with the data? Can I, will I be able to know if there's something right or something wrong? So it's very challenging. You're still, you're constantly learning, but it's, it's wonderful. I think it's all these technical advances are great. In your particular field, what are the bigger challenges that you encounter? Yeah, I think integrating data. I think, you know, for me, that is, uh, you know, if we are exposed, uh, Every day, we all know this, all of us who dedicate our lives to, to research, it is very difficult to keep up just uh, of how all the papers that are being published on a daily basis. We, can, we look at them and then we, it's very difficult to get really in the deep, 
data and analyze. And there's so much data being poured right now that it's, I think we need to take like a moment, take two steps back, look at the thing, the whole thing, analyze it and try to get uh, sort of a global comprehensive view. Because now, as I said, we are gathering data that is very complex, very complete, but we still need to sit down and have the time to really try to understand it, to analyze it, to, to reach conclusions. So uh, that's sort of like the downside, perhaps, of what all the great things that I was telling you before is that uh, data is just being poured, oh, and then we're just getting it and getting it. But perhaps we also need to take much more time to sit down and integrate all that data and analyze it. And that's very challenging. I think that's the main challenge right now, one of the main challenges. I would say the, the second challenge is that we are in a, in, in a very good moment right now to translate many of the findings into the clinics so that there is a benefit for patients. Uh, I know many of us who have started in a purely basic research uh, type of you know, uh, environment, uh, sometimes we feel reluctant and sometimes we might feel even a little bit scared to take that step. But uh, I really think we should be, you know, like, uh, I don't know if the word, this is the right word, but sort of like brave about it, you know, say, okay, even, even if I fail, uh, I'm, I'm going to try you know, I'm going to get into this world that I don't know anything about. But I, I think now is it is perhaps a right moment to do that. But of course, as I said, it is a challenge. It's a challenge. So we need to like uh, bring together many ex- different expertise, different experts in different fields and uh, hospitals, mm, research institutes, as well as pharmaceutical companies, investors, etc. Bring all that together in order to sort of secure or ensure that many of the things that we're doing are then beneficial for the patients. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, yeah, especially when different labs in um, different corners of the world are working on the same uh, topic. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, that, that's, that's another thing. Of course, you know, competition is always there. And, and that and, and, you know, we, our life, uh, in a sense, I'm not even going to get whether that is right or wrong, but that's just a fact. We depend on... Uh, grants. We depend on publications and these must be novel in order to get them in journals that are going to have visibility. And it's sort of like a vicious circle, you know, that, that you, you sort of, it's like our staple basically, you know? So um, um, that in a sense, sometimes can break communication and collaboration with different groups uh, that might be doing very similar things. Because, well, you know, I guess you don't want to be scooped. You want to be the first one or you need to be the first one in order to continue with, with your research. Uh, hopefully we find a way that competition is always good. I think it's a healthy thing as long as competition is kept in a healthy manner, you know. Uh, so to so keep competition, yet that competition not stop progress in, in, you know, in the direction of translation, translation from basic research to the clinic, yeah. It's, it's a challenge, but hopefully, you know, uh, it's, we can get sort of better at it. Um, so related to the talk you gave, uh, could you explain a bit more about the equivalent of the pound-enriched diet that was given to the mice and the implication of increased innovation in tumors? Yeah, I mean, here, uh, it's, it's always very difficult to have sort of a parallel, to set a parallelism between the diet that we might that we provide to our 
uh, animal models uh, to the diet that we humans and the human population eats. You know, first, the first thing is that uh, all our mice are being fed exactly the same food. And of course, you and I, even though we, you know, we, we probably have similar diets, but many aspects of the diet are, go are going to be very different. So, in order to, so uh, it would be very difficult to find saying, okay, the amount of fat that we are feeding uh, these mice in order to study the effect on metastasis would be equivalent to this. So exactly, I, I wouldn't dare really to, to uh, you know, make a parallelism saying, well, this corresponds as if you're eating a pizza, uh, two hot dogs and chips every week. Uh, the way we see it is this would correspond to the type of diet that many people are eating based on supermarket food or what we call also cafeteria food rather than eating from the market, rather than, you know, more like perhaps how, how we were eating uh, 50, 60 years ago, uh, where people were eating more vegetables and fish and, and fruit and not so many things in boxes and in plastic bags or, you know, processed type of food. So I think, if any, the type of food that we were providing our mice would be sort of corresponding to that type of processed food-based diet. Thank you. Um, so you shown the involvement of palmitic acid in our cancer, and you also mentioned multiple cancers. So is there a cancer which is the most affected by uh, fatty acids? Of course, we haven't tested all the tumor types, but at least from the ones that we have tested so far, this would be melanoma, oral, uh, in collaboration with others, you know, breast, certain types of breast cancer, uh, ovarian um, There is also data on uh, bladder, uh, pancreatic, prostate. It's difficult to have a comparison because while the, the assays are not identical, uh, they have not been done in the same lab. So in our hands, when we have compared side by side, say, for instance, ovarian, uh, melanoma and oral, I would say the effect is very similar in all three of them. Uh, I could not, we don't have any data supporting saying, oh, you know, oral cancer is much more sensitive to this palmitic acid prometastatic effect than melanoma. All right. But um, yeah, I mean, I think the importance there is that I think the take home message uh, from or one of the take home messages, at least that we get from our data, is that this is a general effect because this is not a genetic thing. This does not depend on whether the tumor has PI3 kinase mutated or P10 mutated or RAS or P53 or whatever, you know, uh, uh, wind pathway, etc. This seems to be a flexible state that tumor cells can acquire. And that, unfortunately, that flexible metabolic state is quite strongly promoting metastasis. But the, the way to think about it is that once the metastatic cell has reached the, uh, the organ and if the metastasis were to grow in a very large manner as the primary tumor, it will regain the, heter the metabolic heterogeneity. The metastatic lesion will now start to look more like the primary tumor. It, it regains that metabolic heterogeneity. So these metastatic cells, what I mean, they're not fixed in this always needing, uh, well, when, when they are initially metastatic, they are, but the metastatic lesions 
in the end, they have the flexibility also to resort to other nutrients, glucose, etc. So um, that's why I think that so many different tumor types um, have the same effect, show the same effect with palmitic acid because it's just a metabolic state. And the, whether you're using glucose or fatty acids, well, that's a general thing. All our cells can do that. And it's, and it's independent whether the cell is in the oral cavity, in the skin, or uh, some ovary cells. It's all cells can and will utilize glucose, amino acids, fatty acids, depending on their needs. They all have this ability. You know? It's inherent to life, you know, in a sense. So, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't dare to say there's like tumors that are more sensitive to this than, than others at this stage. Thank you. Um, so we're almost at the end. Um, may I ask how did the pandemic affect your work and how has it been with the lockdown and going back to the lab? Well, I mean, I mean it, it has affected it, I think, like like everyone else. We, in, in the IRB, I think uh, things have worked quite well. Uh, I'm, I'm very grateful, I think, you know, of how the people of my lab and the people of the Institute have responded to the pandemic. You know, everyone has seen that this is a... Well, an unprecedented, at least for us, those of us, those of us who are alive, a precedented uh, situation. And we just needed to try our best to get things going and, and, and avoid the whole system to crash. So in our case, because our institute was part of the institutes that, that performed tests, PCR tests for the population, that meant that we were some of, uh, some of us were allowed to come in the institute. And because of that, we could not, we didn't have to stop all the ongoing experiments. Uh, we couldn't start new experiments, but we could, didn't have to stop the ones. That for my lab, especially for the part that is involved in aging research, uh, or all the part when we have patient-derived tumors that are transplanted into the mice, uh, that it would have been a real blow, a big disaster if we had to have to stop all that. That would have been years of research loss. So fortunately, that didn't happen. Um, but of course it has affected. I think it has affected mostly the mm, people are a little bit worried. People are afraid, you know, and let alone the fact that you're locked down for almost four months. It's a very unusual situation and having to communicate always through a screen. That's also very unusual. But I, what I perceive is that people now are, are worried as well, is this over or for how long is this going to drag? You know, uh, when are we going to get a, uh, a vaccine that works? Uh, when will we be back at a sort of normality? Uh, others, I think, uh, and I include myself, see this as an opportunity. Of course, it's a, you know, all it's very sad, all the people that have died and the people that are sick, but maybe this is an opportunity mm, not to change the entire world and society, no, but to, to change things that we could all see were not, our society was just not doing well, you know. And, uh, you know, for, as an example, uh, dolphins and whales uh, were spotted in the beach of Barcelona for the first time in so many years. Uh, we, we, had, we had bees in the city, We had, uh, you know, the, the pollution dropped dramatically. All of a sudden, you could hear, again, birds in the city, you know. And we sort of discovered that the city without cars 
uh, is an amazing place. So uh, it's, it's incredible on the rivers are way cleaner. <laughs> you know, it's incredible. Only four months of stopping human, like more or less stopping human sort of behavior and productivity, uh, how quickly nature sort of reacted in a positive way. So, you know, hopefully with all this situation, we could learn some lessons from that and we can go back to sort of like a normality that is enhanced. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I, ca I can really relate to this. So the one last question, it would be, um, what are your hopes for the future of your research? We're putting a lot of effort into this communication. It's very complex. <laughs> Maybe, you know, sometimes I wonder if, we should have taken this direction because it is very complicated when you start to really try to understand say, okay, I'm looking at how say the skin or the muscle, how it works on a daily basis. But I want to understand how the function of the muscle is impacted by the function of the liver, uh, the heart, skin, the brain, etc. all the different, there's, they're all connected. They're all communicating. They're all connected and they're all synchronizing. You know, this is why we work on circadian rhythms. They synchronize their activity on a daily basis because it is essential, for instance, that our livers and our and gastrointestinal tracts are synchronized when you're eating food. Think of the disaster if our livers would be thinking it's 2 a.m. and our stomach thinks it's 2 p.m. Things are not going to work well. There's going to be a big problem for, for that organism. So... Uh, I wish we managed to at least start to understand that. I think that probably the way I see the, the, the whole thing, it will probably be a, a main thing for the rest of my career. It's not something that we're going to understand in three years or four years. And the it's, it's going to be a big effort. And I hope that we manage to get some insight. You know, not, we're going to get a lot of information, but that we are capable of understanding uh, you know, and integrating that information. That's, that's one main goal. The second uh, thing that I hope is uh, I, I have sort of like jumped into the swimming pool without really knowing you know, if, there, if there was water there into this whole translation part. So, you know, I, I opened, I, I created a company, I co-founded a company last week, last week, last year, sorry, uh, aimed to, to take this information that we're getting from all the metastasis research and hopefully developing therapies that specifically target metastatic cells. Um, and I, I mean, I'm very excited by this. It's been, it's been a tremendous amount of work that I've added to myself, you know, besides having my lab, but just because when you are very excited about something, you kind of like find energy from where you didn't think that, that there was any more energy. And, and so I really hope that knowing that the success rates of many drugs that we intend to bring into the clinic is actually sadly low, but I really hope that at least some of it works and, you know, some patients would eventually uh, benefit from all this effort. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. Thank you very much for this. It's been a great pleasure to have you. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you so much for organizing this and, and for inviting me. Great. Thanks.